Lasso. About 80 years ago, the quite brilliant English philosopher and mathematician Alfred North Whitehead made the comment that in the modern era, religion has become an ornament for an already comfortable life. We know that life isn't always so comfortable, in which case then religion can provide us with a very handy anesthetic to kind of dull the pain. Or as Marx so famously, famously said, uh, religion is the opiate of the masses. As I've listened to quite all of you now over the last couple of weeks in, your, in the one-on-one -on -one interviews, uh, what's obvious is something not at all surprising, and that is there are real struggles. There are difficulties, some of them physical and, all, and pretty much all of them mental. Uh, in terms of the type of training you're going through right now, um, it's to be expected, it's part of the practice. There are many forms of practice, including in Buddhism, and I would have to say, especially in Tibetan Buddhism, that can provide us with a very, very appealing diversion away from the troubles of our lives, away from our mental afflictions and so forth, as we get caught up in rituals and forms and institutions and liturgies and so forth and so on. They can be very meaningful, but they can also simply be an expression of a pursuit of hedonic pleasure. I really like Dharma because it, 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 it makes me happy. Something from outside. So it's strange when even Buddhism, a Buddhist practice, can turn into more of an anesthetic or even an opiate. When we consider the Buddha's original teachings, uh, when he went, when he walked to Saranat, and the first teachings he gave were, this is the reality of suffering, recognize it. This is the reality of the source of suffering, eliminate it. This is the reality of the cessation of suffering, realize it. And here, this is the reality of the path to the cessation of suffering follow it. So that is absolutely a non-anesthetic approach. And I think what a lot of us are finding here is that it, although this is a very beautiful environment, I mean, it's an exquisite environment, I've never meditated in a more conducive place for a sustained period, um, there really is a dearth of entertainment here. There's just not much happening, you know, no television, radio, we're not chatting with each other, uh, even though this is a great uh, resort spot, we're not taking advantage of all the resorts here. And so the, this can be called a, an eight-week retreat, but it also can be called an eight-week detox program. You know, Because literally we are addicted. I think it's a, a literal addiction to hedonic pleasures. And the, the, the core entertainment center is in the obsessive and compulsive flow of our own thoughts. They keep us entertained, maybe very painfully entertained, like a horror movie, a really grade B movie, a terrible movie, but at least it's a movie. Right. And so we're cutting off of all the stops. It's really like gold, going cold turkey. If you're not a native English speaker, you might think I'm talking about a, new sand, a sandwich, but it's... <laughs> cold turkey is for a heroin addict, an opium addict, and so forth, where you're just suddenly absolutely cut off from your drug. And the withdrawal symptoms can be very painful. And one might think, what the hell am I doing here? I should get out there and get my fix. And so the assumption for the heroin addict and the assumption for the hedonic addict is that even though the mind is heavily prone to mental afflictions, we can be happy anyway. And that's the betting assumption, that's the working assumption. 
that even though the mind is prone to delusion and psychobabble and the craving and hostility and envy and arrogance and all the other mental afflictions, despite that, I can be lucky enough in the great casino of samsara to have a happy life. But the final word on the great casino of samsara is the casino always wins. <laughs> Famous truism of Las Vegas. The, the casino always wins. And how it always wins is no matter how rich, how happy a family, how fantastic looking you are, how successful, how many pleasures you've had, how many vacations you've been on, the casino wins because you're still subject to aging and you're still subject to sickness. And death then just comes out and snuffs out all the fun. So here we are. Welcome to the detox program. A number of you have commented that uh, in your meditations, it's, you're kind of like a very heavy jet. And I actually went off in one of those. Airbuses, I flew by Singapore Airlines from Sydney to uh, Singapore. I flew in one of those ships, unbelievable, large airplanes with two full decks. It was just amazing those things get off the ground. But of course, here's how they get off the ground. <laughs> they are so heavy that it's a long, long runway, you know, to get off. And some of you are like a double-decker airplane and getting off in your shamatha practice. It takes about an hour, about the second hour, and go slowly getting lift off. And then an hour later, I'm getting to cruising altitude, and then it's over. <laughs> Just get to cruising altitude, and then the gas runs out, and down you go. And so... I've been speaking so much about relaxation, but maybe it's time to temper that a little bit. Um, relaxation, of course, if this is ever to develop along the path of shamatha, it is the great, first great balancing act, is the synergy between relaxation and stability, right? And that is, yes, we're deeply relaxing, but we're not just relaxing and having this slow, slow takeoff by just sheer settling down by settling down, but we introduce this element of discipline. And that's where the stability comes in. That it is relaxed, but it's not just relaxed, right? So introducing the stability element, then, then you can see the synergy, what the more stable the mind becomes, in fact, you get more relaxed. But then the more relaxed you become, then the more stable the mind becomes, and then the more mind becomes, the more relaxed, and then you actually start taking off on stage two, three, and four. For that discipline, uh, and in the practice of mindfulness of breathing, I would say don't count out counting. There is a cost-benefit analysis in it, that is, it does interrupt the flow of mindfulness. But if there's that one staccato count at the end of each inhalation, it brings you back. So at least you won't be wandering for five seconds, ten seconds, a minute, five minutes, every breath, boom, it's a little reminder, kind of like a tap on the side of the head. Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? <laughs> you, know, you know. So you can still fall into laxity, but it gets, it's just not so fun you know, to linger in laxity, to linger in excitation, because you have that, where are you? you know? And so that's the idea. It brings you back. It brings you back and gets centered. Now we'll go now into, and we're going to go a little bit late this morning, but we're going to go into the second phase now, second phase of mindfulness of breathing, practiced in Burma, practiced in... In, Zen, in the Zen tradition, of course, practice elsewhere as well. I've mentioned, I've referred to this as a transitional phase of mindfulness of breathing. Transitional doesn't mean for dummies. 
or for people who are weak-kneed or people who are just, you know, are somehow disabled. It's transitional in the sense that it's very unlikely you would achieve stage five, six, seven, and so forth of the, of the path of shamatha by focusing on the rise and fall of the abdomen because the sensations are quite, quite coarse. So it's just not likely you're going to overcome coarse laxity, medium laxity with such an easy target. Easy target, right? For that, you're going to come up here or you'll come eventually to the acquired sign, acquired sign, counterpart sign, I'm just mentioning in Tibetan, I've not seen any indication or any references to acquired sign or counterpart sign in the Tibetan or Indian, Indo-Tibetan tradition. And my suspicion is that's because they didn't really practice, especially in Tibet, mindfulness of breathing as a shamatha technique all the way to shamatha, very commonly. Or if they did, they do do it with visualization, which is quite a different practice. So that said, the mindfulness of breathing, focusing on the rise and fall of the abdomen, can be very, very helpful for really moving into the stability area because the sensations are there and then that counting and the combination of attending to the relatively easy to attend to sensations at the abdomen with the counting can really be quite a knockout punch for getting the obsessive flow of thinking to subside and really start to see that you can maintain an ongoing flow of attention for 20 seconds, 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes and really get somewhere and not always be slipping back to stage one, stage one, stage two, stage one, stage one, but actually start going. Okay? So, with a no further ado, let's jump in and still have a 24-minute session. So settle your body in its natural state, imbued with the three qualities of relaxation, stillness, and vigilance. Then relaxing deeply into every outbreath and releasing all the way through the end of the outbreath. Settle the inner voice in its natural state by settling the respiration in its natural rhythm, breathing as effortlessly as if you were deep asleep.
settle your mind in its natural state, setting it at ease in the present moment, clearly attending to the sensations of the breath for a little while throughout the body with this diffuse awareness, not tightly focused, but just be present from moment to moment within the space of the body and attend to, take note of the duration of each in-breath, of each out-breath. Rest your mind in a witnessing mode. Release with every out-breath the involuntary thoughts. Over the course of the first three stages of the development of shamatha, the primary attentional imbalance overall, or generally speaking, is coarse excitation, which entails the complete forgetting of the object of mindfulness, 
we become completely distracted. The remedy is empowering your faculty of mindfulness, the ability to sustain the flow of recollectedness, of non-forgetting, to enhance the stability of your attention. For this, let's now more narrowly focus the attention on the bare sensations of the rise and fall of the abdomen with each in and out breath. Keep your face relaxed, your eyes totally disengaged from the meditative practice. Focus just your mental awareness on the sensations of the expansion and contraction of the belly without visualizing it, without thinking about it. Maintain a flow of witnessing awareness, bear attention. rather than bottling up the energy behind all the obsessive thinking that goes on, the rumination, rather than countering force with force with every out-breath, as if you were releasing air from an overinflated tire, with every out-breath, release the thoughts, release the energy behind the thoughts, let go. It's not enough just to relax. The attention also needs to be stabilized. And so with each in-breath, arouse and focus your attention clearly with some force, some real concentration on the sensations of the in-breath at the abdomen. Arouse and focus with each inhalation. But knowing you need to do so only for a short period, and then during out-breath you can relax again, but sustain the flow of attention. Don't just space out. Sustain the flow of mindfulness on the sensations of the breath of the abdomen for the whole course of the inhalation, for the whole course of exhalation, Treat this as a full-time job. There is simply no time for anything else.
Treat each cycle of the respiration like a full meditation session with the arousal of attention during inhalation you counteract laxity with the release during exhalation you counteract excitation with each in and out breath accomplish shamatha balance your mind From moment to moment, be as sane as you can be, as collected, stable, and clear. From moment to moment. While practicing, release any notion of achieving this and achieving that. Release your hopes and fears. And just be sane now, as sane as possible. then like a person working in a company, working full-time, but punching in every hour on a time clock, just to let the boss know, you're here, punching in briefly and then going right back to work. An hour goes by, punch in briefly, right back to work. Full-time job. Similarly, at the end of each inhalation, punch in one very staccato count, one. And then get back to work. Back to the work of releasing and relaxing through the out-breath as you attend to the sensations of the breath. Arousing during inhalation, this is your job. And punch in, two. One count at the end of each inhalation. You may count one through 10, one through 10. You may simply continue counting. Or in the mode of experimentation, try counting one through 10, and then see how you can sustain the stability of attention without counting. If your mind wanders a lot, try counting again. Experiment to see how helpful the counting of breaths can be.
Let's bring this session to a close. So many of my teachers, Gatrud Rinpoche immediately comes to mind, but Geshe Rapta and many of the others made the comment so many times that unless you really fathom the reality of suffering, your Dharma practice is going to be at best by fits and starts. A little bit of Dharma, and then, oh, something came up, and we, have to, we got distracted. And then, oh, oh, Dharma, oh yeah. And, or maybe it's a little 15 minute, minute day. 15 minutes of Dharma, like brushing teeth, brushing my teeth Dharma. And then everything else, unless we re- unless we get it, unless we really understand the reality of suffering, dharma is going to be more first aid, not much more. And the essence of it in Tibetan is zakje tamjit dungalwa, zakje tamjit dungalwa, terribly translated as life is suffering. What it really means, or kind of paraphrases, life is suffering. Of course, life isn't suffering. Our meals here are fantastic. I haven't suffered in there once. Every time I've been there, it's even, oh, <laughs> happy. <laughs> you know? That's not suffering. Zakje tamje dunga all experiences that are conditioned by mental afflictions. And my experience in the kitchen is influenced by mental afflictions. Only one, actually. One, delusion and then craving. Uh, at least two. Um, and a little bit of anxiety last night when I thought the mango might run out before I got my turn. There was a bit of fear. <laughs> All experiences that are conditioned by mental afflictions of any sort, delusion, craving, hostility, are unsatisfying. That's the best translation I can do. Are unsatisfying. And that is, we had a really good meal, but that's enough, isn't it? That, that was, we don't really need any more good meals, do we? Because we had a bunch. So how about just porridge? From now on, porridge, three meals a day. Wouldn't that be? Boy, is that a stony silence. (laughs) You mean you want more? And so, yeah, but unsatisfying. We want more. And it's an awful and a magnificent quality of the human mind that we not only want to be happy, but we want to be happier. And it's only because of that that we ever find our way to Dharma. And so as long as the mind is conditioned by mental afflictions, it doesn't matter how big we win in the great casino of samsara. It'll be unsatisfying. It'll be unsatisfying. It's guaranteed. And the really, the really dire comment there is it will be unsatisfying forever. If it were only unsatisfying for a few more decades, and I could really live with that, say, I'll just try to be lucky for a few decades, and then, out like a light, obliterated, exterminated, annihilated, no more problems, just one, the third noble truth, cessation of suffering because I don't exist anymore. That would be so much simpler. Then hedonic pleasure looks like, well, let's give it a good shot. But if it's really true, all mental states, all experiences conditioned by mental afflictions are unsatisfying forever. 
And it's not only aging sickness and death, but what young Gautama was really after was not aging sickness and death because he did get old, he did get sick, and he did die. But the next one, and that is birth, that it starts all over again, and again, and again, and again. It's endless. And that's really daunting. That samsara doesn't heal itself. It doesn't just go away. Mental afflictions don't just die down. So what's the relationship with shamatha? Mental afflictions, whoa, the mind is sick. And what's the relationship with shamatha? And this is where I'll end, because we all want to go and leap back to our meditation cushions. The phrase from Shantideva in the eighth chapter, the meditation chapter, he says, the person whose mind is distracted dwells between the fangs of mental afflictions. So as long as you're still prone to excitation, the blah, 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 blah mind, the mind that just is incoherent, the mind is not a samadhi mind, a mind that is dispersed mind, fragmented mind, distracted mind. You live between the fangs of mental afflictions. They're, just, they're like, a, a, like a lion that's yawning. But you know what's going to happen with those teeth. They come down. And so it's really as if, I think the best way of phrasing it that, that I can think of is that insofar as our minds are distracted, our psychological immune system is shot. ADHD means HIV of the mind. The immune system's shot. So whatever mental affliction comes up, the mind is going blah, 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 like in a, in a non-lucid dream, and then some mental affliction comes up, we'll catch it. It doesn't matter what it is. Craving, envy, arrogance, whatever it is, the mind is just in that non-lucid dream of wandering about in distraction. You name the mental affliction, you will get it. And you will fall right into its grip. Great crocodile of mental afflictions. And the immune system is shamatha. It doesn't, it doesn't heal you. It doesn't eradicate the mental affliction. But it subdues them. It bolsters your immune system. So then you can get on with the real task at hand. And that's developing Vipassana, developing, if you're following the Mahayana path, Vipassana and Bodhicitta. And then if you're in a hurry, then practice Vajrayana and finish the job. No longer be a Bodhisattva. Be done with being Bodhisattva. Become Buddha. So that's that. Okay. See you at 4.30.